Welcome to National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them. Why expand the national park system? That can be a controversial question. There are many folks who would love to see additional units added, and there are just as many who say the National Park Service currently does not have the staff or funding to adequately maintain the existing park system. This is Kurt Repencheck, your host at the National Parks Traveler. We've been exploring that question in recent weeks and months, and an argument can be made that since national parks carry the highest protection of natural resources in the country, we should expand the park system to better protect biodiversity and, if possible, help it grow. In this week's show, Lynn Riddick helps me present you with a story that explores the question of expanding the national park system for the sake of biodiversity. If you prefer reading the story rather than having it narrated to you, the long-form post is on The Traveler. At the end of our story about expanding the park system, Lynn returns with a short audio postcard from Big Cypress National Preserve. We'll be back in a minute with our story on expanding the national park system. Whether it be strategy, business planning, change management, board development, executive search, or diversity planning, Potrero Group is here to help. They mix a depth of experience in the parks and land space with the breadth of best practices from other industries. For more information or to schedule a preliminary conversation, go to potrerogroup.com. P-O-T-R-E-R-O group.com. Full of stunning photography and thought-provoking reads, Smokey's Life is a biannual magazine produced by Great Smoky Mountains Association. Members receive it free of charge each spring and fall, and it is available for purchase in retail stores throughout Great Smoky Mountains National Park and online at smokiesinformation.org. The Yosemite Conservancy helps visitors connect with Yosemite through adventures, volunteering, and the arts. It's the only nonprofit dedicated to supporting Yosemite National Park and funds grants to improve trails, restore habitat, protect wildlife, and inspire the next generation of nature lovers. Learn more at yosemite.org. Do you work or volunteer for the National Park Service? Are you retired from the Department of the Interior? Learn how you could earn $250 by joining Interior Federal Credit Union and opening up a new credit card. Visit their website for membership details and how to join. Federally insured by NCUA. Barely seven pounds in weight and maybe a foot tall, the swift fox historically was synonymous with North America's short grass prairie and grasslands that once blanketed mid-continent. Spending most of its days in a burrow, the fox came out at night to hunt small prey in the rolling landscape of buffalo grass, bluegrass, and wheatgrass. But the species, the smallest of foxes, was almost lost to history due to early 20th century predator eradication programs and habitat loss. Even today, the house cat-sized predator occupies only about 40% of its historic range of grasslands. But without a determined recovery plan that included state, tribal, and conservation stakeholders in 10 states, it might not even have had that much. Three decades ago, when 90% of the species' original habitat was without the swift fox, 
those groups set out on an ambitious plan to both return the predators to areas of their historic habitat and to restore grassland ecosystems. Not only did the work launched back in 1992 succeed in the United States, but it also saw the diminutive fox reappear in parts of Canada. The success story of this swift fox not only is an example of how collaboration between various entities can bring a species back from the brink of extinction, but also one that shows how foresight leading to action can prevent a species from being listed under the Endangered Species Act. It also underscores the value the national park system holds today and offers for tomorrow for protecting biodiversity. National parks aim to protect important natural and cultural values for current and future generations to enjoy unimpaired, said Rebecca Eppenchen-Neal. She is a University of Maryland associate professor in the Department of Agricultural and Resource Economics. That unimpairment aspect is really important for biodiversity protection as well. I think national parks are an important tool in the toolbox for protecting biodiversity, even if it's not the only tool. Earlier this year, Apanchen Neal and two colleagues documented how protected lands such as national parks and collective preemptive efforts can keep species from being listed as threatened or endangered under the ESA. Preemptive conservation efforts are one policy approach that can help stem these challenges, that is, preventing species extinction, and serve as an important pathway for conservation of imperiled species. They found after studying 314 species considered for listing between 1996 and 2018. While expanding the national park system would no doubt be a costly proposition in dollars and human resources for the National Park Service, failing to do so would also be costly for biodiversity. The Park Service is never going to have enough money unless somebody on high comes down and mana from heaven drops down on the Park Service. The critical piece to think about is what we are about to lose, stressed Elaine Leslie, the Park Service's chief of biological resources, before she retired. I don't think you can put money as the forefront issue for not adding to the park system. We certainly want park units to be fully funded now, and they're not. But I don't think that should be the prohibition from adding new units to the system. Viewed by many, if not most, park visitors as spectacular playgrounds, national parks also hold some spectacular pockets of biodiversity. Great Smoky Mountains National Park is home to more than 19,000 species, including 100 species of trees. Biscayne National Park is home to more than 1,000 species of plants, birds, fish, and mammals. Congaree National Park is said to have the most animal biodiversity per 100 square kilometers at 362. Cuyahoga National Park reportedly ranks number one in terms of plant species per 100 square kilometers, with 935. But there are many gaps, areas that would benefit from the protection the National Park System provides natural resources. Despite several efforts dating to the 1940s, there is no expansive Great Plains National Park that would preserve the tall grass prairie and its resident flora and fauna, although there are national parks that capture small segments of this ecotype. Coastal marine waters that are extremely biodiverse and serve as highways for right whales and humpback whales up and down the east coast lack protection from shipping. 
the headwaters of major rivers deserve additional consideration for protection because they support a wide array of human and ecosystem services, such as clean water, healthy plant and wildlife populations, power generation, and economic benefits for downstream communities, notes a 2017 National Park Service report. If the country is going to meet the Biden administration's goal of protecting 30% of its lands and waters by 2030, expanding the park system to provide the highest level of protection makes sense. The National Park Service was given that message more than a decade ago when the National Park System Advisory Board was told to envision a conservation system that is large and connected enough for organisms to adapt and evolve to changing environmental conditions and sustain the integrity, diversity, and health of the ecological and evolutionary processes and associated ecological services in the parks. Such a system, continued the message from three conservationists, would help ensure resilience in the face of climate, land use change, and other environmental stressors. But since that report, Natural Resources Gap Analysis, Conservation Tools for National Park System Management in a Changing World, was presented back in 2012, a definitive roadmap for achieving its goals has proven elusive. Jody Hilty, one of the authors who then worked for the Wildlife Conservation Society and today is president and chief scientist of the Yellowstone to Yukon Conservation Initiative, was quick to answer when asked whether the conservation system that she, Michael Scott of the University of Idaho, and Craig Groves of the Nature Conservancy envisioned had come about. No, it's not, she said. It's not the first time that scientists have suggested that we need this. There have been lots of calls to create a national system for conservation. The United States government also has not formally ratified the Convention for Biological Diversity, which requires member countries to develop a national biodiversity strategic action plan, said Wilty. I think for all intents and purposes, right now the U.S. is acting in many ways like a signatory, she continued. They have the America the Beautiful program moving forward, but what we haven't seen is a coherent, singular strategy of where does the United States want to go and what are its conservation priorities going forward. I think part of the challenge in the U.S. around getting to a national biodiversity strategy has been twofold, added Wilty. One is sort of the tension between state power and federal power, and the other being tensions among the federal agencies, who all sort of, in some ways, compete against each other, even though they shouldn't. The Interior Department, along with the White House's Council on Environmental Quality and the Departments of Agriculture and Commerce, have, since January of 2022, been working on assembling an American Conservation and Stewardship Atlas, a database to reflect baseline information on the lands and waters that are conserved or restored. Multiple inquiries to the Interior Department for more information on this project and where it stands were not answered. However, a private group working to launch a new National Parks campaign has compiled a list of more than 100 areas around the country that would add missing biodiversity pockets to the park system. Among areas on the list that the group claims are not represented today within the national park system are the central Great Plains of Kansas, Nebraska, Oklahoma, and Texas, 
the Willamette Valley of Washington and Oregon, the northwestern glaciated plains in Montana and the Dakotas, the northern Minnesota wetlands, and the Yukon Flats in Alaska. There also are dozens of areas the group maintains are inadequately represented in the park system. What we did is look at ecoregions, which the EPA has laid out. There are three ecoregions, said Michael Kellett. He's co-founder and executive director of the New England-based conservation group Restore the North Woods. And if you start looking at it, it starts to zero in on where there are big gaps, and it's pretty much the entire east other than the Appalachians. While Great Smoky Mountains National Park is viewed as a relative hotbed of biodiversity, Kellett argues that at 522,427 acres, the park is not big enough to accommodate wolves. But there are opportunities to expand it to include the Nantahala National Forest, 531,148 acres, the Pisgah National Forest, 500,000 plus acres, and part of the 650,000 acre Cherokee National Forest, he said. Shenandoah National Park could be expanded to include the George Washington and Jefferson National Forests, which are adjacent. The central and southern Appalachians are considered one of the top hotspots in the United States for biodiversity. Conservation priorities can be a moving target in the United States, as priorities often change from presidential administration to presidential administration. While the Trump administration prioritized economic development over conservation of nature, the Biden administration has swung 180 degrees, stating that the country must preserve 30% of its lands and waters for biodiversity by 2030. It has a long way to go. Margaret Walls, a senior fellow at Resources for the Future, a nonprofit think tank in Washington, D.C., says that only about 14.2% of lands in the country carry the highest levels of protection, those having permanent protection from conversion of natural land cover and a mandated management plan in operation to maintain a natural state. On paper, that percentage could be more than doubled, she said. We did some calculations that involve how much Bureau of Land Management and Forest Service land could be placed in a more protective status, like a national park, Walls added in an email. The result? If all BLM and Forest Service lands were given the highest levels of protection, the United States could claim 673 million acres of protected lands, or almost 30% of the country's land area. But that doesn't necessarily mean those 673 million acres would capture the most biodiverse acres, because there are places in the country with robust biodiversity that are outside the BLM, Forest Service, and National Park Service landscapes. One example is the Mobile-Tensaw area of Alabama. The region counts at least nine significant rivers and drains a watershed of about 260,000 acres. It's home to 126 fish species, 46 species of mammals, 69 reptilian species, 30 amphibian species, and at least 300 bird species, according to the Encyclopedia of Alabama. Forests at various elevations reach into the sky with bald cypress, tupelo gum, longleaf pine, water hickory, laurel oak and live oak, bitternut hickory, white oak, and even spruce pine, just to list some of the species. 
It's the center of oak diversity in North America, north of Mexico. It's the center of magnolia diversity in North America. It's the center of hickory diversity globally. It's the center of sunflower diversity globally. It's the center of turtle diversity in the Western Hemisphere, said Bill Finch, who has spent more than three decades working on conservation in Alabama and today is the founding director of the nonprofit Paint Rock Forest Research Center in the state. The biodiversity of this place is more and more amazing than any place I've seen in the lower 48, said Leslie, who visited there when she worked for the Park Service. A 2020 Defenders of Wildlife report that looked out across the country to find the most biodiverse areas concluded that preserving 30% of U.S. lands and waters is possible, but the approach to conserving areas needs to be very focused on the most biodiverse areas. Critically, current protections regularly don't overlap with areas essential for conserving imperiled species biodiversity and mitigating climate change impacts through carbon sequestration. The report notes, the Defenders of Wildlife report is interesting because it looks more at the biodiversity issue, showing that most biodiversity hotspots, 80%, notes the Defenders report, in the U.S. are not where we have protected lands, says Walls. So I guess a logical next step might be to argue for protection of these lands, perhaps as national parks. Much remains to be determined. How are conserved and restored defined? What connectivity will be sought? The Council on Environmental Quality back in March gave federal agencies six months to outline how they can develop or restore and protect ecological corridors, including those relied upon by wildlife during their migrations. Whether that information will be corralled by September remains to be seen. To capture the most biodiversity, new models of conservation might be needed. Some of the most biodiverse land is in private hands, noted Kristen Brengel. She's Senior Vice President for Government Affairs for the National Parks Conservation Association. And so you have to continuously create models to add protection. I don't work on conservation easements, but we should evaluate whether that's providing the protection. And if it is, great. If we need something else, we should talk about that. To me, the fact that we passed the Great American Outdoors Act, and now we have the Land and Water Conservation Fund that's permanently funded at $900 million a year, it really creates a situation where the federal government can offer to buy some of these areas to protect them. The only issue is whether it's a jigsaw puzzle or it's a really well-intact land purchase that you can make. Three federal agencies manage the bulk of public lands in the United States the Bureau of Land Management at 245 million acres, the U.S. Forest Service at 193 million acres, and the National Park Service at roughly 85 million acres. Arguably, though, the Park Service's guiding principles trump those of the BLM and Forest Service, which both are focused on multiple use of resources when it comes to preserving or conserving natural resources. And so, if more biodiversity is to be protected in the United States, it would make sense that much of it be protected through expansion of the national park system. When the National Park Service System Plan of 2017 was written, it considered some of the biodiversity that was missing from the system. 
Of the primary terrestrial ecosystems in the United States, 111 are completely underrepresented in the national park system, and 392 ecosystems, 55%, are underrepresented in the national park system. Underrepresented is defined as an ecosystem with less than 5% of its total land mass held in protection, the plan's authors said. Additionally, there are other important natural resources and ecosystems that have essentially zero conservation protection by the NPS or any other federal agency, state, local government, or privately owned conservation areas, it added. One of those areas underrepresented in the park system, the document noted, were grasslands, home to the swift fox. According to the plan, among the missing pieces, the headwaters of major rivers deserve additional consideration for protection because they support a wide array of human and ecosystem services, such as clean water, healthy plant and wildlife populations, power generation, and economic benefits for downstream communities. Unfortunately, these hot spots are often influenced to a heightened degree by human pressures and, increasingly, by the effects of climate change. Freshwater biodiversity hotspots require heightened protection, yet in the United States and elsewhere globally, few freshwater sources are protected. Another missing piece, national marine sanctuaries, national wildlife refuges, and national parks cover only a small fraction of the marine environment in need of protection a strategically designed system of marine reserves covering a broad range of representative habitats is essential to ensure long-term survival of myriad species. A quarter of the earth was once covered by grasslands. Today, approximately 5% of grasslands are protected globally. Protected grasslands are threatened by invasive species and fire suppression, as well as fragmentation and urbanization. For these grasslands not yet protected, the primary threat is conversion to farmland. Coastal ecosystems in need of protection are located on the Gulf of Mexico, in the Florida Keys, in Alaska, along Arctic tidal flats, and along the Pacific Northwest coastline, just to name a few areas. Urban encroachment and the associated wildfire suppression threaten high deserts and exacerbate the impacts of climate change. Between 1990 and 2007, more than 8 million homes were built in the wildland-urban interface of the western United States. Preserving such places through expansion of the park system carries several benefits, maintains Kellett. I really see it, in a way, as a problem-solving approach to things because we have got at least two mega-problems facing the planet, he said. We've got climate change, we've got loss of biodiversity, But really, number three is the impacts of these things on humans. And so now it just so happens that national parks address all three of those things because protecting land and water and stores carbon, it mitigates the climate. It's a national natural infrastructure to buffer against storms, etc. From the standpoint of Wilty at the Y2Y initiative, not everything needs to be managed as a protected area. We're not looking to kick people out, but only to conserve really important core habitats, she said of the Y2Y effort. And then, secondly, to connect them, because we know from science that connected protected areas are more likely to retain their elements, 
to retain their ecological processes over time. And of course, when you add on the layer of a changing climate, allowing animals and plants space to redistribute across the landscape to find their climate niche is really important. And that can't happen in a sea of humanity. There has to be room and corridors that allow species to move through time and space. With the clock ticking on climate change and biodiversity being overrun by development, business as usual in conservation circles might not be the best approach. We talk about Yellowstone National Park as this iconic, world-renowned, most important place for wildlife in the world, said Leslie. And yet, we cannot protect what happens in regards to migration. As key as migration is for some wildlife, obstacles continue to pop up. In Wyoming, the state recently auctioned off oil and gas leases on 640 acres, at just $19 per acre, along the path of the pronghorn migratory corridor that stretches from Grand Teton National Park to the Pinedale-Wyoming area. In Georgia, a congressman is railing against federal legislation aimed at protecting endangered right whales. Maybe we do need some new national parks, said Wilty. How do we get those in an ecologically representative way over time? That's a challenge that I don't think that the current government has taken on squarely because there is such a concern about what some folks who react to this call the land grab. I don't think that's the intent at all. The intent is, let's work on this together to conserve what we all care about. Listener and reader support make National Parks Traveler possible every day of the year. If you enjoy the Traveler's content, please consider a donation via nationalparkstraveler.org. Acadia National Park is one of the 10 most popular national parks in the United States. It is also one of the smallest and most vulnerable. That's why Friends of Acadia exists. Friends of Acadia is an independent organization of passionate people, inspiring those who love this magnificent park to make a real and lasting difference for Acadia. You can make a difference too at friendsofacadia.org. The Everglades Foundation, the only organization whose sole mission is to restore and protect America's Everglades. Learn more at evergladesfoundation.org. The Grand Teton National Park Foundation is a private, nonprofit organization that supports projects that protect and enhance Grand Teton National Park's cultural, historic, and natural resources. By funding initiatives that go beyond what the National Park Service could accomplish on its own, foundation donors improve the visitor experience and provide benefits to the national park system for decades to come. See their successes at gtnpf.org. The Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation is the primary nonprofit fundraising partner for the Blue Ridge Parkway. It is made up of people who have a deep love for this majestic road and want to ensure that its natural beauty and the experiences it offers endure for generations to come. You can show your appreciation at brpfoundation.org. Washington State is graced with three spectacular national parks, each different and special in their own unique ways. As the official nonprofit partner and the only philanthropic organization dedicated exclusively to supporting these parks through charitable contributions, Washington's National Park Fund has a mission to raise private support to deepen everyone's love for, understanding of, and experiences in Mount Rainier, 
North Cascades, and Olympic National Parks. Share your passion for these parks at WNPF.org. Now, to get back out into the national park system, Lynn has the following audio postcard from a recent trip she made to Big Cypress National Preserve in Florida. Come slosh with me through a freshwater swamp, and I'll tell you a little bit about Big Cypress National Preserve. I'm here on a wilderness walk with my brother Bruce and our guide Albert, a tour that I booked through the Big Cypress Institute. It's a great way to get your feet wet, literally, and a nice introduction to the preserve when your time here is limited. We're going to go into a cypress dome, which is basically a divot in the plate of Florida. It's kind of like someone took an ice cream scooper and just made a little hole in the plate of it. Um, when you fly over them, they kind of look like big donuts because basically the trees get taller and taller and taller until it gets too deep in the middle. And uh, it just, you know, it drops off completely and turns into pond apples and things like that. So we're going to just wander on through there. We're going to see a bunch of bromeliads. We're going to see... Uh, different medicinal plants that I'll, I'll show you guys, um, you know, what their use, uses are. Uh, we're going to talk a little about Florida history, about the, the Native American tribes that existed in these areas. And uh, we, we might see fish, we might see alligators, we might see birds of all different kinds. We might see butterflies, dragonflies, snakes. I mean, who knows? It's really a wild card. I never know what we're going to run into. So with swamp water up to our ankles, and at times our thighs, we make our way around the cypress dome. As we dodge branches and vines and step over slippery tree roots, our guide points out cocoa plum, poison tree, bay tree, pond apple, floating heart, lemon bacopa, black willow trees, bulrush, and orchids. This is fantastic. Look at this. Yeah, to the Native Americans, these were actually sacred places um, because in the heights of the wet and the, the dry season specifically, like when, when it's super dry and there's no water anywhere, this is where you find, you know, the bear next to the deer, you know, in, in a truce, or the panther, you know, next to the bear. And like, you know, animals that traditionally would be trying to kill each other would come here and they would find peace. Albert provides walking sticks Thankfully, because they save us a few times from falling on our butts. The water is surprisingly clear with a bottom of squishy, leafy muck. Your feet sink a little with each step you take. Yeah, this is probably going to be like one of the deeper parts that we're going to go through. We have to get across this little area right here. Whoa, it drops fast. Yeah, that little area. Whoa, it sinks fast too. Yeah, this little area is going to be a little adventurous. And then we're going to uh, kind of like... If you can, try to stay on the log, uh, but if you can't, it's not that big a deal, but I'm gonna walk you guys like kind of this way, but try, try to just see if you can balance and it'll, it'll, it'll make life a little bit easier. Balance on the log, all right. Then, you know, Whoa. Sure you, you use your walking stick to help you balance. Oh, I'm sinking in. Yikes. <laughs> All right, all right. I think I feel the log you were talking yeah. about. Okay. If you can balance on that and the walking stick, and okay. once you get to here, you here, know, the, root, the roots will help you um, to, to stay up. My stick is stuck in the mud. Whoa! Tis an there adventure. That's the end of the branch I'm walking on right Yeah, okay. yeah, it'll, it'll, uh, well, I think it kind of has a little bit of a, a bit right here. Okay. 
Oh yeah, there's some of it right here, but then you can walk here, and if you okay. stay on the roots area, the roots save you, man. If, okay. If you're not walking on roots, you're, you're sinking. Made it through. How are you doing back there, Bruce? More than 700,000 acres, Big Cypress sits above Everglades National Park in South Florida and protects the flow of fresh water into the Everglades. The preserve is a critical habitat of the endangered Florida panther. Work is ongoing to create a statewide wildlife corridor so that panthers and other important species can freely traverse the entire length of Florida, reproduce, and thrive. Still, conservationists agree that more work needs to be done in and around the preserve. But right now on our hike, frogs are croaking and gators are bellowing as we pause to listen to their sounds in and around the dome and solution holes. Following the swamp hike, we take a slow drive on the 24 mile loop road. Passing first through the Pinecrest area where the road is paved, we see a number of homes. Private land ownership continues for people who purchased land prior to the establishment of the preserve in 1974, including villages and homes that belong to Mikasuki and Seminole families. Hunting is allowed in parts of the preserve, as well as oil and gas exploration and production. After Pinecrest, the paved road ends and the mostly smooth gravel road begins and passes through cypress strands and slash pine habitats. We stop frequently to cast binoculars on various birds we spot, white ibis, great egrets, a cormorant, an anhinga, a green heron, and osprey. Pausing at a number of culverts along the way, we're rewarded with some sightings of alligators, large and small, including a dead one floating belly up, a handful of black vultures waiting above in the trees. As you get closer to the Tamiani Trail intersection, the gravel road becomes a ruddy, bouncy mess, and it's a challenge negotiating around the multitude of potholes. Tamiami Trail is one of two roads that bisect the park, Interstate 75 in the north and the Tamiami Trail further south. I have a pretty heavy foot, but there were other vehicles and large trucks ripping past me at 80 or 85 miles per hour. Very unnerving, especially as I was slowing to make a left-hand turn into the Kirby Storter Roadside Park with no separate turn lane. So be careful. There's an elevated boardwalk at Kirby Storter. It's about a mile down and back and takes you through a section of dwarf cypress forest. It's a great option for folks who want to get in the middle of the swamp without getting their feet wet. If you have time on your hands, you can hike the Florida National Scenic Trail. It's 1,400 total miles up and down the entire state, 38 miles in the preserve. The trail winds through sawgrass prairies, cypress strands, and hardwood hammocks. It offers remoteness and tranquility with wildlife and botany sightings. 
It terminates at the Tamiami Trail, Route 41. There's plenty of hiking and kayaking in the preserve. You can also take a swamp buggy tour, except in June and July when the preserve is closed to off-road vehicles, allowing fragile swamp areas to recover. I was happy to spend time in the preserve, albeit too short, and next I hope to get to neighboring Everglades National Park. Having only seen that vast and wildlife-rich river of grass from the window of an airplane. From Big Cypress National Preserve, this is Lynn Riddick. That's our show for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. Before I go, though, I'd like to ask for your help. For the past 18 years, we've brought you original stories written and produced by professional journalists covering national parks and protected areas. Over the next four weeks, we're going to be holding a fundraising campaign, reminding you of some of these stories and pointing to some important upcoming issues that deserve our coverage and your attention. The National Parks Traveler is a nonprofit media organization. As such, we rely primarily on our listeners and readers for funding. Your support enables us to send our correspondents out into the park system to produce the news, features, videos, and podcasts you've come to expect. As you may be aware, it's a tough time right now for the media industry, but it's important work, and we know that you know that. Without the National Parks Traveler, these important issues will more than likely not be covered. So take a look at what we've been doing with such meager resources for so long and weigh its value. Thank you for your support in the past, and please consider helping us to keep these vital stories coming. For The Traveler, this is Kurt Repencheck. See you in the parks. The composers and musicians at Orange Tree Productions have created a unique collection known as the National Park Series that has grown to include more than 30 CD titles. Composed against the backdrop of a park's sounds of nature, these musical scores will connect you with these beautiful places and take you there, at least in your mind. This collection is the number one selling National Park audio series in the world and provides the background music for National Park's Travelers podcasts. Visit them at orangetreeproductions.com. Editing and production work for the National Parks Traveler podcast is done by Splitbeard Productions. You can learn more about us at splitbeardproductions.com. National Parks Traveler is a 501c3 nonprofit media organization that provides daily editorial coverage of national parks and protected areas. Traveler's coverage is made possible by reader and listener donations. Visit us at nationalparkstraveler.org.